Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. What happened to music that meant something? The Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Tony Visconti has worked on 10 albums with David Bowie spanning five decades. Now the duo has teamed up for Bowie's highly anticipated new release. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. We hear from the great producer Tony Visconti. Then it's my turn to add a song to the Desert Island Jukebox. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. the track I Feel Love by disco legend Donna Summer. Jim, if you remember when Summer passed away last year, there was a huge outcry. Why wasn't this artist in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Well, next month, Summer and the rest of this year's inductees take their place in the hall. It's a more diverse class than in years past, including Public Enemy, Rush, Randy Newman, and Hart. It's a promising sign for those of us who've been critical of the Rock Hall, and more changes are afoot in Cleveland. This January, the Hall of Fame got a new CEO. Greg Harris got his start at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, before moving into the Rock Hall in Cleveland in 2008. He takes over as CEO from Terry Stewart, who held the post for 15 years. When Harris's new role was announced, he got a big shout-out from none other than Questlove, the drummer for The Roots. Turns out Questlove was a regular at the Philadelphia Record Exchange, the record store Harris owned in the 80s. Greg Harris now joins us from Cleveland, and we're curious to learn about his journey to the Rock Hall's top job, and also its notoriously secretive induction process. 
Greg, thanks for joining us on Sound Opinions. Jim, thank you. I'm honored and thrilled to be on the show. I'm sitting in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame high atop the museum in our radio studio, and it's a blast to be connected to you guys out in Chicago. So, Greg, you have quite a history prior to becoming the president and CEO of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I am deeply you know, impressed that you are on Questlove's radar, the great drummer for The Roots, who says that he bought many of the records in his 70,000-album collection at the Philadelphia Record Exchange, a record store that used to run in Philly in the 80s. Now, tell us about that place. Absolutely. A friend and I started it back in 1985, and uh, we'd been working at another record store together in sort of the record section of one of these great old dusty used bookstores, and we decided to go out on our own. We opened up our own store, and uh, we started by selling our own record collections. Questlove, or as we knew him, Amir, he was just a kid coming in the store with an army jacket on, uh, kind of trolled the racks, and he, he stood out because he bought a real eclectic range of music. You know, what's interesting is he went on to great things, but there was a hundred other kids like him doing the same thing. It was just a, a wonderful spot. Greg, when we look at your resume, the indie rock uh, background, working with Ben Vaughn as a tour manager, spending 14 years at the Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum, Almost every job you've had your entire life seems to be leading to you running the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. To be honest, it didn't feel like it was a real linear path. Before the record store, it's, it's loving music. For some reason, I got into old things, and I had a, a 57 Chevy. It was my first car, and when you're building that car, suddenly you, you pick up the cassette tape that was from the Cruise in 1957 series, and you sort of get into the 50s music a little bit. Well, I say, come on over, baby. We got chicken in the morning. After the record store and and working with bands, I I really wanted to get back to college and learned about this field called folklore, where you you do oral histories and documentary film, and you really, it's the history of the people, which is what rock and roll is all about. Well, obviously, it, it seems like both institutions, both halls of fame mean a lot to you, Greg. How then do you react when someone like John Lydon, you know, Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols, says the the Hall of Fame is a blank stain, I don't want anything to do with it, or Ozzy Osbourne before he reconsiders his take my name off the list, or Axl Rose throws a hissy, you know, that Groucho Marx thing, I don't want to belong to any club that would have me, which in rock and roll, let's face it, is the basic impulse of much of rock and roll. You know, it is. It's an industry that, that values, and we as fans value individuality. Ego, you want that swagger. You know, it reminds me of, of a, a story I heard that when you two heard that they were elected, they had a serious discussion about, is this an honor that we want to accept? Does it mean we're old and irrelevant? You know, <laughs> are we on a shelf? And, and I get that. That completely makes sense because they're still making music. They're still making their art. And I'm sure that when they go into the studio, they feel like the next album coming out is going to be uh, even better than all the ones before it. And that's the exciting part about it. Well, we get a lot of feedback from rock and roll fans, Greg, about who's in the Hall of Fame. And I I guess the key questions that they keep coming back to, who's choosing the voters? Who actually votes for these things? Why are certain bands excluded and others included? There seems to be a bias perceived that, for example, heavy metal, disco, certain areas of, of rock and roll are ignored by the Hall of Fame in, in favor of a more of a classic rock perspective. So if you can hone in on a couple of those things, who chooses the voters, sure. who actually votes, why do they vote the way they do? Sure. Well, there, there is a nominating committee that develops the ballot. 
and that nominating committee is about about 30 people now. And, and the committee itself, everybody puts forth nominees, and the group goes around the room and literally votes. And I believe for a number of years there was a, a logjam, say, on the progressive rock side. And what they did was they, I, I give them credit for at least trying something. They created a committee that would focus on prog rock to put forth uh, one candidate as opposed to everybody in the room putting forth different candidates. That's really what how a band like Rush finally made the ballot. Once the ballot's made, it then goes out to 600 voters, and the majority of them are the other inductees. So Bruce Springsteen has a vote. Bonnie Raitt has a vote. Johnny Lydon has a vote. And they weigh on it. And the idea is that they would be best positioned to actually vote on their peers. But the root, I think, of our skepticism, Greg, yeah. is really those 30 guys in the room. And they are guys, let me tell you. Because I, I observed, albeit 15 years ago, all right, the smoke-filled back room, no actual smoke, but metaphorically, that 30-member nominating committee. Do they recognize that a band like Kraftwerk, there is no modern electronic dance music? without this group from Germany, right? But, I mean, I saw a lot of gray hair that did not appreciate innovation. I don't know how those th- – it's like the Pope, right? Who gets to be on the committee that gets to nominate the Pope? Who gets to choose those 30 people who put together the initial ballot that then goes out to 600 people? I, uh, I hear you loud and clear. I'll tell you what's remarkable. That room of people, they nominated Kraftwerk last year, and they were on the ballot. Mm-hmm. So some of this is getting, I think – to a point where some of those type of bands are being recognized. I'm not saying all of them are, but I'm with you. Roxy Music, love them. Impactful, influential, yes. But it was cool that they actually went with Kraftwerk. Kraftwerk was on the ballot and went out to that bigger voting body. It was very, very cool. Have there been any campaigns? I mean, I know you just recently came to the, the, the president and CEO position, but you'd been working with the Hall for a number of years prior to that. You know, fans getting involved for a band, getting out the vote situations. Have, have you experienced that level of fandom? Or, or the bands themselves. You know, the, the Weinsteins famously uh, campaigned mightily to get Oscars mm-hmm. for the films they've produced. Have, has anybody done that in rock? You know, on, on the fan side, those that have been the most visible... And it's interesting, the most visible ones were actually not in your face. They were the Rush fans, and they were the most polite fans you'd ever meet. <laughs> it's a Canadian <laughs> band. The, you're absolutely right. When Rush plays here in Cleveland, it's an incredible turnout. And there's always you know, people wearing the colors in the museum. Uh, there would be a group of folks out in front of the museum that were voicing displeasure that the band wasn't in yet. Picketing. And, you know, <laughs> and, and now they're in. Other bands, the Kiss Army Still turns out, and when Kiss is in town, uh, they are here, and they are loud and proud. We love that part. We embrace that dialogue. The idea is that if people aren't concerned who's in or who's out, then it's irrelevant. What's powerful is that people actually care. A Monday warrior, mean, mean stride. Today's Tom Sawyer, mean, mean pride. We've been talking to Greg Harris, the new president and CEO of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. Greg, thanks so much for talking to us. Uh, Jim and Greg, my pleasure. Uh, would love to do this again sometime.
that's new music from David Bowie. The stars are out tonight from his highly anticipated new album, The Next Day, his first in a decade, and it's out now. We're going to review it later in the show, but this gives us a good chance to revisit our 2008 conversation with the man who produced The Next Day, Bowie's longtime collaborator, Tony Visconti. He's worked with Bowie on 10 albums, including Space Oddity in 1969, Heroes in 1977, Scary Monsters in 1980, some genuine Bowie classics in there. Visconti's other credits include a number of albums by fellow glam icon T-Rex. He's also worked with Paul McCartney, Iggy Pop, Thin Lizzy, The Moody Blues, and more recently, Dean and Britta, Alejandro Escovedo, and the Kaiser Chiefs. Greg, Tony remembers many of those studio experiences in his book, Tony Visconti, Bowie, Bolin, and the Brooklyn Boy. He also writes about his earliest days as a producer, learning from the famous team of Ahmet Erdogan and Jerry Wexler back in the 60s. But first, we had to know how a boy from Brooklyn ended up a super producer in the UK. I came to realize that all the best music at that time was coming out of England. Of course, when the Beatles started importing their music to America, I realized that was even cut way above Elvis's music. And these guys actually wrote their own music, and which Elvis never did. So I, I had to go to England, and I really wished hard to meet an Englishman. I, I didn't know how a kid <laughs> from Brooklyn was going to get to England. How do you do that? You know, I didn't even know how to buy a plane ticket. But in my publisher's office, I met my first bona fide Englishman, who turned out to be uh, Denny Cordell, who was a famous record producer in the 60s. He produced Procol Harum, Georgie Fame, The Move. Mm. And uh, he played A Whiter Shade of Pale to me in the, my publisher's office, and I nearly fainted when I heard it. Later that day, he had a, a recording session for Georgie Fame in New York, and uh, I asked to see the charts, you know, the musical, the, the manuscript paper. I wanted to see how English people wrote music. And uh, he said, we have no charts. Mm. Uh, we roll a joint, and <laughs> we listen to the demo, and then we try a few things out. And, you know, after 10 hours, we have uh, something on tape. And uh, I turned a wider shade of pale, and I said, we don't do that in New York. We don't do that. This is New York 1967. And I yeah. said, we, you need notes on paper. If, if you ask these guys to write their own arrangement, it's going to be a charge above union scale and this and that. Mm -hmm. And then Denny, it was Denny's turn to, to turn pale. And uh, he said, what, what am I going to do? So I listened to the demo. I wrote a very rudimentary chart and put it on this new machine that we had in the 60s called a Xerox. And uh, we ran down the street with 10 copies and put it in front of the musicians. And within two hours, we had a great recording on tape. You know, my wishes came true. I met my Englishman, and uh, I was given a job on the spot. I'm curious. I mean, what were you looking for? I mean, did, did you see yourself making a life's work out of, out of producing records at this point? Well, no, I, I made a few records with American producers and no producers, just an engineer. And I realized that there was something I didn't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there was a lot I didn't know. <laughs> like, how do you get a great guitar sound? How do you get a great vocal sound? Where, where does the echo come from? All these basic questions about recording, which uh, in those days, it was uh, the recording studio was a closed shop. 
if you went in as a musician, you were not allowed to go in the control room. Hmm. So I realized recording in the UK was much more uh, easygoing. I read that the Beatles had just recorded this album called Revolver, and they they took nine weeks. Whereas in New York, I knew from experience that you'd make an album in three days, or maybe two days, you know, mm. and uh, it was really totally different. So my job was to learn how to get those sounds, and I didn't want to become a record producer. I just wanted to know how they did that, because I still wanted to be an artist. But um, I got this bad news. Just before I, I went to England, my publisher called me in the office, and he said, uh, I have to talk to you about your songs. He goes, uh, I don't like your songs very much. I don't think you're, you're a hit songwriter. I just uh, got very depressed mm-hmm. instantly and said, oh, okay, I'm fired. You know, <laughs> you know, back to the drawing board. Maybe I'll, I'll play some more weddings and bar mitzvahs, you know, the, <laughs> which I was used to doing. And he said, but I love your recordings. I love your demos. So that's when I really, uh, it, it hit me that the producer's job is creative and, uh, you know, it's, it's almost as good as being a rock star. <laughs> you were, uh, you know... It was a great era, as you said, for, for the kind of innovation in, in the way records were produced. You had Phil Spector in the early 60s defined a certain sound. The Beatles were defining their sound. You got a chance to watch Amit Ardigan and, and Jerry Wexler work, which was a, was a different working method. Did you have a sense of how you wanted to work as a producer, what your role would be in the studio once you got in there with other artists and, and, and helped them make records? Yes. Quite early on, I believe that um, the best kind of record production was kind of uh, audio alchemy. I don't know a better word for it, but the, the Beatles definitely were the progenitors of that kind of concept, you know, where Ringo was saying, uh, I don't know, uh, they make a guitar sound like a piano, they make a piano sound like a guitar and all that. And I just love that. I mm-hmm. love the fact that you can play guitar and make it sound like a piano and like, how on earth do you do this stuff? So that was the kind of producer I wanted to be. I wanted to work with people who were really keen to do this, to to turn the recording studio, to make the recording studio a wizard's uh, laboratory, just making magic. How did you ingratiate yourself with the English artists that would that would take up the 70s that you'd become best known for? How, how did you move from being the house producer at Richmond to going over to the UK and begin making records? Well, luckily, I arrived in London at the right time. It was Swing in London. And uh, we didn't have Virgin Airlines or anything like that. I mean, it was really tough to get from one coast to the other. So here I was, one of the few Americans working in London. There was only one, two others that I knew of, and that was Jimmy Miller, who produced the Rolling Stones, Mm -hmm. and Joe Boyd. And I was one of three Americans in all of town. So even though I was, at that time, my talents were quite mediocre, I was in demand. People wanted to work with this American. We'll hear more from producer Tony Visconti after a quick break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Later in the show, it's Jim's turn to drop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox. And out of that town Got clean away in a stolen car And made the graduation into the banking business. Reach for the sky, sweet talking pride would holler as Bonnie loaded. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and you've been listening to our conversation with producer Tony Visconti. We spoke with him in 2008 and were revisiting it upon the release of The Next Day, which brought Visconti back with longtime collaborator David Bowie. We're going to review the record later in the show. But of course, Jim, what listeners are hearing now isn't David Bowie, but another classic artist from the glam rock era, Mark Bolin of T-Rex. Tony Visconti met both Bowie and Bolin at critical stages in their careers. Both were young and undiscovered. Here, he describes whom he encountered first. I think Bolin came first. It's kind of a blur, but I think it was a month apart. One day, Danny Cordell turned to me and said, it's time for you to produce your own act. Uh, There was this uh, newspaper called the International Times, and I kept seeing an advert for a band called Tyrannosaurus Rex. And I think I heard John Peel mention their name several times on his uh, radio show. And fortunately, that evening, they were playing right around the corner from my office. And I walked around to Tottenham Court Road and went down this uh, little staircase to the UFO club. Mm -hmm. (laughs) UFO club. And uh, there were two UFOs sitting on the floor and playing music. And, of course, they were Mark Bolin and Steve Peregrine Took, collectively known as Tyrannosaurus Rex. When my eyes adjusted to the darkness, I could see that there were about 100, 150 kids sitting cross-legged uh, around the, the group. And uh, I was used to teenagers screaming when, when bands were playing, but this was kind of a, a psychedelic folk duo. And the audience was hanging on to every nuance, every, you know, swaying their heads and swaying their bodies. And I kind of was hoping to find the next Beatles, but I, this band was something I qu- didn't quite understand. And... Mm-hmm. and that's what drew me to them. And I, I met Mark and gave him my business card and said, I would really love to work with you. I work with Denny Cordell. And uh, he said, he looked at my card, looked at me, n- noticed I was American. And he said, well, you're the seventh producer who uh, contacted us this week. John Lennon was here last night and uh, we're probably going to go with him and all that <laughs> stuff. So that's how I met Mark. <laughs> Of course, John Lennon had no idea who this band was. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Did you see any glimmer of the records that you would make in the future once Bolin plugged in? Sure. You could tell it was based on rock and roll. He, he was uh, right on the first album. There were several songs that were basically 12 bar blues. And Mark already said that he was a fan of Chuck Berry and uh, earlier blues performers. And he, even his little wiggle in his voice was uh, the... Something he acquired, he kept playing this record uh, of a blues singer at the wrong speed mm-hmm. and uh, with higher, a faster speed. So he, he would sing along with the record and the vibrato was like, oh, like very fast, you know. <laughs> so I could hear I could hear rock and roll and blues, even though they were very much, uh, they, they dressed like hippies, they sounded like hippies when they spoke. But, you know, there was a, there was rock and roll in, in that music. You 
work with them for the long haul. I mean, you were with this band almost from the start, uh, from the start, literally, and, and, and throughout their career. The evolution was, was pretty rapid. I mean, they were an absolute sensation in England. I don't think people realize how big this group was in England at the time. Um, and you were right in the middle of that phenomenon. How do you explain it? Well, it's a small country. When you get something, you know, when you get a good idea in England, you'll know within five weeks if you have a hit or not. It's very much unlike America. For about two years, they were making records as Tyrannosaurus Rex, and John Peel was the only DJ who was their champion. And after about uh, four albums, we finally came up with one song that everyone loved, Rider White Swan. It had that snappy sound. He was using all the riffs he did in his earlier music, but doing it on electric guitar. We had electric bass on that recording. It was the big hit we, we were all waiting for. We're a tall hat, black and in the old days. We're a tall hat and a tattooed gown. Ride a white swan that the people of a bell dream. Where you head long, baby, can't go wrong. Obviously, the, the whole idea of this glam rock fad was creeping into the culture as well. Where did that intersect with what Mark Bolan was doing? Well, uh, contemporary rock groups, the guys who were selling records, got all funny. You know, they, got, they, they turned into lumberjacks. They were wearing flannel shirts. Everyone was growing long beards, including the Beatles. The Beatles had beards, too. And uh, <laughs> the teeny boppers lost their idols. You know, they had no one to really look up to as a, as a counterpart. And uh, Mark just went the complete opposite. No beard, no flannel shirt. He was wearing glittery costumes platform boots. He was wearing mascara. I mean, this was unheard of. Mm -hmm. He was absolutely beautiful and and had an arrogance and a swagger that was anti the hippie movement. Even John Peel was shocked when, when Mark suddenly literally changed overnight. He just decided to be a rock star. I think Bowie was behind Mark maybe by a month on this. I mean, Bowie was thinking about this. So the, the time was absolutely right for a change. People were bored with the, the bearded rock stars, and they wanted you know, some nice, clean-shaven, pretty boys. And it was just fantastic. And we had the right music and the right look. Nineteen seventy one's Electric Warrior, the T Rex album that produced Bolin's only US top ten hit with Bang a Gong, it really seemed to contain all of the sonic hallmarks that we associate with this great band. That rhythm, that guitar sound, Mark's voice, even that iconic cover. It seemed like the kind of an album an artist was waiting his entire life to make. But you say it really just sort of fell together. Well, you're right. Mark was leading to this moment all his life. He wanted to make a great rock and roll album. He grew up on Elvis the same as I did. And, of course, it was in my mind, too. This is what I was going for. I mean, it sounds like it, was, it wasn't that sloppy. I mean, we recorded very quickly the, the band and the vocals and a lot of the guitar solos. But we spent a lot of time adding strings and brass and piano. And, you know, a lot of the magic happened in post-production like that. And then, of course, I, I went upstairs at Trident Studios and spent a few weeks mixing the album. So we did carefully construct it beyond that point, but it was kind of a secret to the T-Rex sound, which Mark and I never forgot. 
was to record the band very quickly. Don't, don't give anyone a chance to get clever. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's a lesson I try to impart on the, the younger musicians I work with now who are used to working with Pro Tools and fixing everything. We really couldn't fix anything in those days. It, you, you know, you got what you got is what you got. <laughs> is it strange to The other thing I think it's interesting about uh, Electric Warrior before we move on is, is, is the whole idea that this was recorded in sort of hit-and-run style. Have you ever had an experience uh, similar to this, Tony? And, and did you think, given those conditions, that you could make a great record that people still regard as a masterpiece uh, decades later. I only worked with one group that wanted to spend months and months in the studio, and that was the Moody Blues. We did make a really good record, uh, The Other Side of Life, it was called. It had uh, that that hit song, Your Wildest Dreams. So I did get that experience, and there were like there were some people I had spent maybe three months in the studio with making an album, four months. But the Moody Blues broke all records. It was like ten months, <laughs> and uh, I remember one particular experience with them working on a single kick drum for three days. Wow! And you hear about these things, yeah. and uh, I heard about them, but it actually happened to me. <laughs> It's an interesting aspect of your career that uh, you've crafted some records that are considered shining lights in, in what led to punk. But then you were on some records that were also, uh, or worked on some records that were also really square and, and still haven't had their appreciative <laughs> day. I mean, I would champion, I, I love that Moody Blues record, Other Side of Life. I love the Gentle Giant record, Tony. <laughs> I mean, we could sit and, you know, if Cot would let me, he'd start kicking me. You know, we'd just talk about Gentle Giant and the Straubs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Gentle Giant was never cool, even when they were like cool <laughs> they they weren't <laughs> well I, I even love giant for a day oh, that's how big a fan i was i'm amazed anyone has heard of gentle giant they were because <laughs> i see the royalty statements and i know we didn't sell much but i felt i felt by working with a group that was so good they're so progressive and and trained musicians and great singers i i thought i owed that to the music business i had to bring people like that to the fore uh, if a person can play that well and write that well, why should they take a backseat to, to traditional pop music? You know, I was hoping that was that group was going to be as big as Yes, so, mm. but um, we were a little too far out. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. He's Greg Cott, and we're talking with producer Tony Visconti. Tony, why don't you tell us about meeting David Bowie? It was like a month after you met Mark Bolin, right? Yes. Well, after a few months of working with Bolin, a month, I don't really remember. This is like my first year there. My boss said, uh, this is the other boss, not David, uh, Denny Cordell. This was David Platts, who was the businessman behind uh, all of this. And he said, uh, you seem to have a... Um, uh, an ability to work with these odd musicians. <laughs> so I've got another one for you. 
And he played uh, David Bowie's first album that he made for DRAM, I think The World of David Bowie mm-hmm. it was called. And um, I heard this kind of lovely, I don't know what you'd describe his voice. It was thin in those days. It wasn't, wasn't very, uh, well, it didn't have the sonority it has now. And he was writing stuff that was all over the place. He was trying to sound like Anthony Newley on a few tracks. Yeah. So that's what I said to him. I said he seems to be all over the wall, all over the place. But um, yeah, I like him very much. So David Platt says, "Well, he's in the next room." So all this was prearranged, <laughs> and um, we got on really great. He loved things American. He loved a group called the Fugs. He loved uh, Frank Zappa. And uh, I, lo- you know, I love the Beatles, and so we had a great bridge there. You know, we were talking about everything all at once. And uh, I remember we—it was a beautiful day. It was probably late autumn, and uh, we said, "Well, let, let's take a walk." So we walked out of the of Oxford Street and kept walking, and we w- must have walked miles and miles because we ended up in South Kensington. And uh, I remember "Knife in the Water" was playing in this art film. And by then, we established that we both liked scratchy black and white films. Didn't matter who made them. <laughs> and uh, we went to see A Knife in the Water by Roman Polanski. And uh, that was how we spent our first day together. It was just amazing. <laughs> wow. So Bowie was not, you know, at, at times in his career, especially early on, Bowie got this follower reputation. He is, of course, Pop's great chameleon. But, I mean, you're saying already at age 20, he, he was rooted in underground sounds to the point where he could quote the fugs at you? Yes, he he had everything in his collection. He had these records, too. Mm. Uh, But he didn't know what he wanted to do. And my job was to channel him. Like, we have to pick a genre, David, okay? What are we going to do? You know, what are we (laughs) going to do on your first album? So David started writing these songs on the 12-string guitar, and he wrote them pretty quickly. And these are all the songs that are on the first album I produced with him, the Space Oddity album. So we got him going in a direction it wasn't the best direction. I mean, a lot of Bowie fans love that album, but I, I cringe when I hear it. It wasn't, still wasn't right. Really? I mean, the Space Oddity is considered one of those perfect songs, you know? Well, I have to tell the Space Oddity story then. Mm-hmm. I didn't produce it. Yeah. Right. Was the I didn't right. like it. You didn't do. I'm... I didn't like it. <laughs> and how did so, you miss that boat? I recorded most of the album. I rehearsed the album with the group. And at the 11th hour, he, and this is what he'll always do, and this is what he's traditionally done now since I've met him, he writes one of his best songs at the end of the album. Because the pressure, he needs to be hyped up, he needs to be pressurized to, to create, unlike other artists who like to go away to the countryside and write. He loves the pressure. He brings a song to me, and it's not folk rock. It's like nothing we've started to record or rehearsed. And uh, also, I listened to it closely, and I said, David, you're, you're stealing things. I said, the, the, <laughs> here am I sitting in a tin can. That's right off the Bookends album by Simon and Garfunkel, which was a big hit album at the time. It wasn't even uh, an earlier album. It was out in the charts, and David's like <laughs> already like nicking ideas from that. Mm. He was the, the ground control to Major Tom. Is He's putting on a, a John Lennon voice there, and there are like a few Beatles alliter- alliterations there. So I said, David, this is one big cheap shot. And he looked at me very painfully and he says, I know. He says, but the record company likes it. I was full of principles in those days. I was uh, still hippie-ish. And I said, I can't do this. In good conscience, I can't do this. And uh, he he said, okay, um, what should I do? I go, well, Gus Dudgeon, who is my friend and and engineer that we used, his office was two doors away from mine. I said, Gus would probably do a great job on this. And when I heard it, 
I regretted it instantly. I thought he did a marvelous job, and I thought the song was great. Mm-hmm. The next time I saw David, I said, "This is really great," and and congratulations. And I think you and Gus should finish the album together. He goes, "No, I got that over with. Let's you and I finish the album." to have this long relationship with Bowie, uh, even though you took a bit of a break with him during the uh, the glam rock era in, in the early 70s, but you picked up again in the mid-70s and then started working in earnest with him on perhaps his most famous series of records, the Berlin Trilogy, with uh, Brian Eno also participating in those sessions. That was an incredibly creative time for you two guys, and I think in particular that second album, Heroes, and the title track from that record was just an amazing career high point, I think, for both of you. And also Robert Fripp, who played that Titanic guitar on that song. Uh, can you tell us how you worked that out? Well, Heroes was written a couple of weeks before Fripp came down. We we recorded the backing track, and uh, it's one of the few times that David actually played piano live. And uh, Eno was in the control room with me. And we really didn't know what we had. We it, There were no lyrics yet. It was not called Heroes. It wasn't called anything. So... That thing took weeks to craft. It took about two weeks where we kept slicing bits of tape out and joining it up again and getting rid of this part and that part. It wasn't really recorded in the form that you hear it now. Finally, we got something that sounded like this could be a verse, this could be a chorus. And by that time, uh, we needed to do the guitar work. Fripp was available only one weekend. So he came to Berlin, brought his guitar, no amplifier. He recorded his guitar in the studio we had to play the the track very, very loud because he was relying on the feedback from the studio monitors. So it was deafening working with him. <laughs> and uh, whereas everyone thinks it's an Ebo, this magical guitar gadget called an Ebo, in fact, it wasn't an Ebo. It was just the feedback of Fripp playing this da, da, that beautiful motif. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't cohesive in his mind. And Fripp said, you know, that wasn't right. Let me have another go at it. So I said, okay, I'll keep that. And uh, Fripp recorded a second time without hearing the first one. It was a little bit more cohesive, but still quite wasn't right. And he said, let me do it again. Just give me another track. I'll do it again. And we silenced the first two tracks, and he did a third pass, which was really great. He, he nailed it. And it's still, you know, it was a little bit out of tune. It wasn't quite right. And then I had the bright idea. I said, look, let me just hear what that sounds like with the other two tracks. You never know. And uh, mm-hmm. we played it, the, all three tracks together. And, you know, I, I must reiterate that Fripp did not hear the other two tracks when he was doing the third one, so he had no way of being in sync. Mm-hmm. But he was strangely in sync. Mm. And all his little out-of-tune wiggles suddenly worked with the other previously recorded guitars. It seemed to tune up. It got a quality that none of us anticipated. It was this dreamy, wailing quality, almost crying sound in the background. And we were just flabbergasted. This is, uh, I have to point out, like Mark Bolin, David doesn't like to spend a lot of time in the studio either. He really does believe in the Zen moments. You know, the accidents to him are more important than finessing something. And I totally agree with him. 
So Fripp and we all looked at each other. It was just Fripp, myself, and, and Brian Eno in the studio, and David, of course. And we just looked at each other, and we just couldn't believe our luck, how beautiful it sounded and how well it worked out. Oh, we can be heroes Just for one day So after Fripp went and Brian Eno left us, uh, we had to put uh, lyrics and things like percussion. I, I ended up playing the tambourine. Uh, we wanted a cowbell, but we didn't have a cowbell. So we took a tape, a reel of tape that had no tape on it, just a tape reel and a drumstick. or No, I think a metal ashtray. And that sound of a cowbell on Heroes is David hitting the tape reel with a metal ashtray. <laughs> wow. Because, again, impatient. Who could bother? Who could wait till the morning, till the music store <laughs> opened up? You to go up? down you know, and get a cowbell. Right, yeah. Right. And the sound, it's not your average cowbell. You know, what is, again, what is that sound, which is what I live for as a producer. Producer Tony Visconti, author of Bowie, Bolin, and the Brooklyn Boy. Thank you so much for being our guest on Sound Opinions. Well, thank you, Jim and Greg. It was really a, a ball speaking to both of you. When we come back, Greg and I will talk about the new Bowie album produced by Tony Visconti. But first, we invite you to share some of your sound opinions. Have you heard the new record? What do you think? And who are some of the studio geniuses you'd like to hear from? Give us a call at 888-859-1800. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. to get the train from Potsdam Flats You never knew that that I could do that just walk in the day Sitting in the jungle Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and that is the new David Bowie song, Where Are We Now, from the new David Bowie record, The Next Day. 
I don't think anybody expected a new David Bowie record except David Bowie and a few of his close collaborators. What can we say about this artist that hasn't already been said? Since the late 60s, basically been reinventing pop music at almost every turn, at least for the first 20 years of his career. Started out with that folk cabaret phase out of the U.K., the song Space Oddity put him on the map. Then the personas began changing. Almost as quickly as somebody changes clothes in the morning to get, to get ready for work, Bowie was putting on a new personality, a new persona, a new style of music. Ziggy Stardust, the plastic soul era, into the Berlin era experimentation, a comeback with Nile Rodgers and the Let's Dance album in the early 80s. In the 90s, a period of mostly failed experiments, including that band Tin Machine, and then a return to collaborating with his former producer, Tony Visconti, the guy he worked with on a lot of those key 70s albums, on his 2002 and 2003 albums, Heathen and Reality. Then, a heart attack and 10 years of near silence, and fans feared he had retired from music for good. Then, on his 66th birthday a few weeks ago, an announcement from Bowie of a new album recorded in New York City in virtual secrecy with Visconti and many of his longtime accomplices, people like Earl Slick, Gail Ann Dorsey, David Torn, all on this record. Now we have it. It's called The Next Day, and here's the title track from it on Sound Opinions. That is the title track from David Bowie's new album, The Next Day, here on Sound Opinions. Greg, I'm going to start a fight with you right off the bat, okay? This is up there in great Sound Opinions fights history with, I think, Bruce Springsteen and uh, the Bee Gees. I have called David Bowie a B-list artist, and I think some people have not understood that when I've said it. When I say he's a B-list artist, his career, all of those different chameleon-like cha-cha-cha changes that he has given us have always been not about innovating, which is the word you said, has been about going to the underground, seeing fascinating things other people are doing, and then popularizing them or bringing them to his audience. Sometimes it has worked fine. There are many great David Bowie songs, but I really have never considered him a groundbreaker, an innovator. I think he's an opportunist. And rarely has he been as opportunistic as he is on the next day. Because now we don't have Bowie imitating artist X. We have Bowie 
imitating Bowie imitating Artist X. I have a very hard time taking this album seriously. I feel like I've heard it done before and better, and so for me, it's a trash it record. Wow, unbelievable. I th- your misreading of Bowie just continues to astonish me. To me, he was one of the most important artists of the last 40 years, especially in his 70s period, right up through those Berlin records. I think every one of those records is pretty much essential. You're, Aladdin if, saying, if it was really? So, if it, absolutely. If it was so easy to do, why didn't more people do it? Yes, taking sounds from the underground and, and taking what was avant-garde and strange and weird and turning it into pop music, I mean, that, that's a pretty good feat. He was consistently ahead of the curve when it came to setting trends in popular music. Certainly not for the underground, but in terms of his taste and discerning ear for what was important in the underground and bringing it into the mainstream, a one-of-a-kind artist. I think where Bowie is in his career right now is he realizes what people in his life bring out his best work. And I think Tony Visconti is a number one. There's a reason he's gone back to Visconti to help him with these recent albums, because he understands Bowie as an artist, he understands what he's going for, and yet he can still push him to those places that maybe he wouldn't normally go working with somebody else. The thing that Bowie has always done is been able to combine that strangeness with that seductive sense of melody. And I think it's back here in full force. If you loved Bowie, I think you're going to love this record. I haven't been able to say this about a Bowie record in a number of years, 20, 30 years really, since he's been back to a place this good, consistently good, over an entire album. It's a buy it record all the way for me. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. All right, Jim DeRogatis, you're about to pull the parachute and float into the desert island and play us a track on the desert island jukebox. What do you got for us this week, Jim? I'm going back to the underground, Greg. You know, people think they have me typecast and think that I might be sort of a grouchy fellow, and I'm not. I'm usually extremely (laughs) upbeat. But I was a little down in the dumps the other day, and uh, Carmel, my wife, turns to me and says, Snap out of it, Sylvia Plath! (laughs) Whereupon I laughed, and I began singing this song that she had never heard, and it struck me that I can't believe I've never done this as a Desert Island jukebox, a song called Sylvia Plath by Peter Lofner. Peter Lofner is one of the great, should have been important figures in rock history, but died too young at his own hand of his own excesses, drank himself to death, and so he became a footnote. But he has influenced many, many people, probably best known in the Cleveland area as part of the Cleveland scene, playing with the people who would become Perubu and the Dead Boys in an early band that really set the template in the United States for punk rock, Rocket from the Tombs. Lofner, when he died, really left behind only a smattering of singles that had been recorded uh, DIY with Rocket from the Tombs and some tapes, 20 hours of tapes. A few years ago, they were compiled as a best of called Take the Guitar Player for a Ride. Sylvia Plath is his masterpiece. He is singing about the poet who famously committed suicide, and you think that it is about romanticizing her. And then at the end, it all builds to one line of lyric. Let's see you do one thing as senselessly cruel as Sylvia Plath. Because it's really about 
the people she hurt by by taking herself out of this world. This is one of the most beautiful songs, as far as I'm concerned, in rock history. Peter Loeffner, Sylvia Plath on Sound Opinions. Sylvia Plath was never too good at math. But they tell me that she finished at the head of her class And if she lost any virginity She didn't lose it too fast They couldn't hold any dress rehearsals for Sylvia Plath Came into Manhattan She had crawled out of one cocoon Where there was absolutely nothing happening She said if I'm gonna be classless and crass I'm gonna break up some glass Nobody broke anything sharper than Sylvia Plath No romance and excuses It's just a dance in the aftermath And when you check out of this hotel, Jack You're nothing but an autograph The desk clerk wakes up around seven And he tosses it out with the trash But he might keep around a couple of letters return addressed Sylvia Plath. That's my Desert Island jukebox track, Sylvia Plath by Peter Loeffner. What a song. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to report back from the South by Southwest Music Conference in Austin, Texas. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Annie Minoff. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, Tori Southside Malatia. Like David Bowie, he had a glam phase, but it only ended two weeks ago. Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Dave calling from Indianapolis, calling about the Swedish music episode. My favorite Swedish band is Satanic Surfers, particularly the album Going Nowhere Fast. I hosted a couple of Swedish guys as exchange students many, many years ago. And one of them, as a gift, brought me the Satanic Surfer CD, and it is still one of my favorites, and it was a great experience hosting those guys, and I love Sweden. All right, guys, love the show. Keep up the good work. It's
To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.